Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Archonnect Sessions, episode number nine. Uh, today, we'll be talking to Yikai Lim, a trained architect who left the field to develop quite a reputation here in LA with his unique startup, Konashenti Coffee. Uh, we'll also discuss the results of the uh, six finalists for the Helsinki Guggenheim competition. Before we talk to Yikai, let's check in with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. Ken, how you doing? I'm doing well. How's the new job? New job is, uh, you know what, I... I like it a lot. It's structured. Um, it's not chaotic. And I, I kind of, um, I operate pretty well in that kind of environment, especially when it's, when it's not, when it's not your firm, you like structure, but when it's yours, you can deal with the chaos. So, uh, when I, somebody else is chaos, it's hard to operate in. So yeah, it's been going pretty well. And then, um, <laughs> something, something funny happened, uh, last night on the Jimmy Fallon show. Oh, what was that? <laughs> In his monologue, he mentions the he mentions the herbivorous butchers. Yay! Oh, awesome! <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> it's the Arkanext Sessions uh, effect. It's made its way up to Jimmy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It, yeah, he was making a joke about the about you know a vegan butcher, and but it, it you know what it was it was such a lighthearted joke that it, they the butchers are really I told them you know you got to send them a care package, you, yeah. you know and so they're really going to use I mean this is a that that was a great thing for, to happen for them and I'm like now it's now it's getting too now it's just getting too weird even for me and I have nothing I have no stake in this at all other than you know I I'm like I I'm helping them build this space and. But it's just, it's exciting to be around that, you know, people who are doing something they love and really care about and they're fearless at it. And they're, and they're you know, they're in their 20s or early 30s. And uh, it's really, it's it's nice to see it. It's a, it's a great um, model for someone um, who isn't as confident as they'd like to be. And, and that's, that's really nice to see that happen for somebody. That, you know, and they're really a good group of people and... Um, yeah, it was kind of it was very lighthearted joke, and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it's been pretty much a good ride so far. That's awesome. Where's our care package? <laughs> Lost in the mail. I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the vegan turkey didn't show up in time for Thanksgiving. I didn't even get a vegan turkey. <laughs> I was too late. They sold out. I'm gonna work on the uh, holiday ham. <laughs> <laughs> nice, Donna. How was your week? Uh, great. I had a great trip to Phoenix for Thanksgiving to see my family. Um, unfortunately, my husband had to leave early. His mother's having some health issues. So we did not make it up to Arcasanti, which I was sad about, but I do want him to go. And so we'll probably go in spring. But I did make it to uh, a couple of little, little bit of architecturing. I went to um, Will Bruder's uh, Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art, which I've been to several times before. Um, mm. The exhibit there was Eh, the the building's good. The exhibit was not so great, but there was some work by Trevor Paglin, who I think we featured on Archonnect mm -hmm. before, and he and I love his patches. There were a few of the patches there, but visually the work just wasn't all that great. But the building is as always, and the James Trail space was awesome. Then we went to Williams Chen's Phoenix Art Museum, which I had never been inside before. I've been in the sculpture courtyard only, and it is gorgeous. It is just an amazing building. I think it has a little bit of what people were saying about the folk art museum in that the building is very assertive. You're definitely aware of the building when you're in there, but because it's a very spread out and large building, I, I think it gives you room to breathe. And so you can appreciate these very beautiful, complex 
areas of a whole lot of materials and complex detailing, but then there's also a lot of wide open space for big pieces of art. There's a beautiful Solowit drawing on one wall. And there's a great exhibit there now. If anyone's in Phoenix, I highly recommend this one. It's called Vanitas, and it's all many, probably about a hundred pieces, all about death. It's all representations of death and the inevitability of death. Some of them very contemporary, extremely contemporary, some things like Robert Maplethorpe pictures from the 70s and um, some Joel Peter Whitkin photographs that are incredible. You know, if you don't mind looking at a lot of skulls and thinking about mortality, which I'm doing a lot of lately, um, it's a beautiful exhibit. So great building. We had a great lunch in the cafe. So yeah, the the Williams Chen building is fantastic. I recommend people go. Before DSNR tears it down. Oh God, don't even say that. Oh, don't even say that. Ouch. Speaking of mortality. Yeah. Oh no, no. I, yeah. Oh, don't even, you've just cursed it, Paul. Sorry. I I forgot that. That's your trigger. We, uh, we try, it is my trigger. And then we tried to go to the Deer Valley Rock Art Center that Marlon visited when he was doing his architecture travels yeah. series. Maybe we can pull out that Architect Travels episode for the show notes. Oh, I love that series. That whole series was so fantastic. It was. Um, yeah. And uh, sadly, it was the day after Thanksgiving and the, it's a, I think it's a state park and it was closed. So you can't even get within a mile of the building when the gate is closed. So sadly, I did not get to see it. But again, it's Will Bruder. I will be back to Phoenix again. So I'll see it at some point. Excellent. How about you, Paul? How was your week? It was great. Uh, It was exhausting. My family, we hosted four straight days of guests, which was amazingly awesome, but also exhausting. And I did manage to escape to see 2001 A Space Odyssey. (laughs) I wondered if you had. And the way I I managed to do that was just to invite everybody. So we all all left, all the adults, we left the kids at home with with the grandma. Nice. But it it was so... Awesome. Actually, I've seen 2001, you know, more times than I can count, but I've never seen it in the theater. And it was presented in the original touring cinematic format. The 70 millimeter version no longer exists, but the the version that was was uh, presented was extremely high quality. The uh, it was at the Egyptian. And for those of you not familiar with the Egyptian, it's a it's a theater that was opened up in 1922 in L.A., and it was it was destroyed during the, uh, the the big earthquake, the Northridge earthquake. And then Hodgetts and Fung uh, were commissioned to to fix it and redo it. And they, the way that they did it is they they kind of created a new structure, uh, kind of within the restored older structure. And you can really get that sense of you know new and old. There there isn't much um, direct integration, so it's separated. It's a nice feeling, but uh, the uh, the way that the the film was presented just made me realize, like you know, that cinematic experience doesn't really exist that much anymore. You know, going to a movie theater is not what it used to be. And if you're in LA and you have an opportunity to go to a film at uh, the Egyptian, I highly recommend it. Usually, there's um, cast and crew there to to uh, talk about the film either before or after and answer questions. If you want to see uh, uh, Interstellar that we've discussed quite a bit, uh, Christopher Nolan is going to be presenting it pretty soon. So you can actually hear what the filmmaker has to say about the movie. But anyways, yeah, I, I had a great week. Amelia, how was your week? It was also very great. Um, I was going to say, speaking of mortality, if you want to go see a bunch of sarcophagi, you should also go to the Egyptian theater. Um, and instead of visiting, you know, potentially torn down museums. But Donna, I also <laughs> I also went to a, um, a wonderful local museum in, in Pasadena, actually, uh, the Norton Simon Museum, 
which I realized when I went there, I did not know this before, but was also massively renovated in the late 90s by Frank Gehry. The building itself looks nothing like you would you would not assume at all that it's a Gary. He, the renovation that he did was mostly like an expansion and elevating of the roof and putting in these skylights and such. But it's a beautiful building. It's built in kind of the quintessential old Pasadena area, um, which now has, you know, both Porsche dealerships and equal parts orange groves. But it's a beautiful part of old Pasadena, an amazing collection of, of art from a lot of Impressionist era stuff, um, 17th and 18th century European art, as well as an incredible selection of of um, Indian and Southeast Asian art. Really, I'd highly recommend people to check that out because it's also in in Pasadena and the area that it's in. It's like, it doesn't feel like much is going on. And then you you turn a bend and you are, are in this wonderful sculpture garden and then you find yourself in this beautiful museum space. So that's what I did uh, Thanksgiving weekend. And it was great. I had no, no existential crises of contemplating mortality, just a lot of really pretty art. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you are interested in contemplating mortality, because I am, um, <laughs> I wanted to put in a little plug for the Memento Mori site, which is the um, death of this we are sure dot com, which catalogs the deaths of famous architects when they died, what they died from. And I think it was, I can't remember who made this site. We'll figure it out for the show notes. Who was it? It's Brian Boyer. Is it Brian Boyer? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And it hasn't been updated in a while. So maybe we can, uh, maybe we can tickle Brian. To no, I think the site it. itself died. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. So it's there, but it, it um, is, it is, but the, uh, the updates died. Yeah. Unfortunately, because it was a really, it was a really great concept. It is a maybe great we concept. Can, maybe we can talk him into bringing it back, <laughs> maybe connect it with Arcanex somehow. Let's try. Yeah. Not that we promote the death of architects or anything, but. They, they're going to die anyway, <laughs> whether we promote them or not. Until we make our architect <laughs> robot, then we will have to contend with it. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. The freezing a head and sticking it in a jar. Or <laughs> yeah. All right. So you guys ready to talk to Yikai? Yes. Let's do it. Cool. Let's do so we're here with Yikai Lim, architect turned coffee entrepreneur. If you enjoy good coffee and live in LA, you've probably heard of or been to one of his pop-ups around town under the name of Konashenti Coffee. Yikai, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. So you come from an architecture background, correct? Yes. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your background as an architect? Uh, yeah, so I, um, I went to Pratt Institute for my undergrad and uh, Columbia for grad school. And uh, worked out in New York for about six years and moved uh, back to Sacramento, where I grew up. Uh, stayed there for about five years and then moved down to L.A. Uh, worked for an architecture firm and moved back to New York um, to start my own practice and then back to L.A. And so uh, your practice, what kind, of, what kind of work were you doing? What was the name of the practice? Uh, Mill Studio. Uh-huh. And we were doing mostly uh, in interiors, okay, hospitality, uh, some residential projects. So, what uh, motivated you to get into coffee and leave leave the design business? Coffee kind of came about. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, as as you know, working architecture, you know, we we drink tremendous amounts of coffee. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. As I sip some coffee. <laughs> so uh, right, right around 2008, I visited a, a shop called Intelligentsia in Silver Lake and just had my mind blown with their cappuccino. Mm -hmm. And it just got me so curious about why coffee, how, how coffee can taste this delicious and, and really inspire me to think about all these other things that, that kind of the world of coffee, you know, where, where it comes from, all the different origins, um, 
all the hands that coffee passes through. Are you still doing architectural work throughout the course of developing this coffee business? A little bit, yeah. Does it? Do you think it helps doing hospitality work, having that perspective from the, the person who comes in to buy a cup of coffee from you? Does that change how you might think about designing hospitality spaces? Uh, definitely. You know, ha- having designed um, our, our shop in Culver City, the, the operation and the flow is, is is really important. Knowing that a barista, you know, is standing there for for eight hours a day, so that you know the ergonomics of where the, you know, how high the machine is, um, you know, where the adjacent equipment needs to be located. So it's all really efficient, and that you know. It's, so Yikai, I have done a couple of cafe designs and um, I know that they are, every every inch counts, every quarter inch counts, like you have to fit every single thing in. And you started with these pop-up shops that were really mobile carts, which makes it even more demanding because you have so little space. So I wanted to ask a little about how you would relate that building of the carts and the the uh, getting all of the equipment in the right place to the actual brewing of the of the coffee. Oh, sure. Um well, the, the, the first pop-up, it, it really was just a, a stainless steel table. Simple. <laughs> Minimal. It, it kind of grew from there. Um, after, after a few months, I realized I needed to add a lot more equipment, like a pitcher rinser, the refrigerator, water supply, um, the flow jet, which provides pressure to the espresso machine, water filtration, trash, obviously, and then your grinder and espresso machine. So I, I kind of gave myself a program uh, for the cart, which was uh, that it, it needs to fit into a truck. Right. So that dimension, I was, I was limited to uh, a four feet length. And then from there, determine my depth based on the equipment. So it ended up being a very simple two feet by four feet uh, in plan and then uh, 34 inches in height, which is a, a simple box. It's beautiful, though. I, and I will put links in the show notes to some articles that show some of the, the pieces. The design of them is, is beautiful, and uh, it seems very well-crafted, like the coffee is. Thank you. So I actually was at your very first pop-up, it was, I believe, which is, um, it was at a, a frozen yogurt shop right off of Colorado and Eagle Rock. Is that yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. It just happened by coincidence, because I was taking my kids for frozen yogurt, and I was like, oh, wow, there's some amazing coffee here. So I find it really interesting how your business started up as a pop-up. Can you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of, of starting up a business in, in that kind of pop-up format? Well, it, it really uh, came about with an interest to drink as much coffee as possible. Uh-huh. <laughs> so really the only way to do that is, yeah. is to kind of get it out there and, and be able to serve uh, coffee as, as well as, you know, drink as much as I can and... The pop-up concept didn't really come about until a few months in and, and thinking about uh, this idea of mobility and, and inserting oneself into uh, an existing business that was already functioning in its own right and coming in and not, not competing with what they were doing, but really adding value with the coffee itself and working with, um, you know, in this case, uh, the yogurt shop. So it, it allowed for this... Um, kind of natural osmosis of creating a customer service that was really one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that that aspect. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the the process was first the yogurt shop and then Proof Bakery in Outwater Village. Right. And then the uh, the location on in Culver City. 
That's correct. Yeah. And, and then I know that uh, recently you also had a, uh, a pop-up at good girl dinette in Highland park, which recently moved to scoops downtown. Right. right. So can you talk a little bit about how, you know, these different spaces, did they, did they each require like kind of unique solutions for how to kind of interject your, your coffee business into them? Well, the, the cart, um, obviously is, is pretty much set up, you know, with, with all the equipment. Um, the, the thing that we try to engage with the business that we're popping up in, uh, was really the product and, and somehow changing the menu and looking at what would better serve that community. So, you know, for example, um, you know, being in Good Girl Dinette, um, we knew filtered coffee was going to be much more popular than um, like a cappuccino or an espresso. Because people are, are eating? Just on the go. No, uh-huh. it's next to the train station. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. It's also, you know, uh-huh. it happens to be a restaurant, so... Uh-huh. And then, um, yeah, and then with scoops now, you know, obviously with ice cream, the perfect pairing is espresso with, with ice cream, with avocado. Absolutely. And then can you tell us a little bit about the, is I've, yeah, I still haven't been to, uh, to the Culver City location, but I've read, what I've read about it has, has uh, made me curious. When you first opened it, it was being promoted as the first brick and mortar. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yes. But I've also read that it's in Clive Wilkinson's office. Is that also it's actually in his building, but it's a separate okay. space. Oh, it's a separate space. Yeah. Okay. And did you design that? Yes, the interior. Yeah. And was that a was that a brand new process in designing a a coffee shop? It was for for your own business, but um, had you done that before? I uh, no, you know, I, I've done restaurants, but not uh, a coffee shop per se. And uh, in in this uh, location, we we really we really wanted to challenge the kind of typical coffee bar setup. And what we did there was just kind of create this island. So it it, it forces people to uh, kind of engage through that kind of familiar sense of, uh, you know, their own kind of kitchen island layout. So that kind of breaking down that barrier between the customer and the barista. Ken, did you have a question? Yeah. Uh, um, one of the articles I read, and it's, it's, it's a couple of years old, but I pulled one quote from it that I actually uh, I really like a lot. Where you say the creative process forces us to forget. I think you were talking about architecture, to be naive, to think irrationally so we can be better innovators. Do you find there's actually some of that happening in coffee, in in what you're doing with coffee as well to kind of, so it becomes something fresh and new? And does it, is that process forcing you to think differently about coffee? That's a a good question. Well, you you know, the the thing with with coffee is that it, it deals with taste and it's extremely subjective. So we're always trying to create a memory of the flavors that we're drinking at, at that moment. So it's, it's almost the opposite where we're trying to kind of re-engage with the memory of a cup of coffee that we drank maybe yesterday or a week before. And obviously, I think, you know, there's, there's ways to uh, a process within that to, to obviously document as much as possible. And maybe on that note, it's, it's, it takes you back to kind of, you know, the architecture process. Right. You know, one of the things that I like a lot when I have coffee and when I go to a place that I trust is that I don't have to put anything in it because the, the roast is so good, the way it's ground, the way it's made. And I don't have to rely on any sugar or cream or anything like that. I just trust. And it's kind of like when I go to a restaurant, I know that I'm going to a good restaurant when I don't see salt on the table. <laughs> 
I mean, that's my interpretation. That's that's just me. I I I know that I can trust that the chef has flavored their food in a way that if I add salt to it, I'm actually going to alter what he's trying or they are trying to convey to me. So I wonder, you know, I've been to um, a few coffee shops and, and actually there's one in, in Tampa called Perk and they do these shots of really, they, they spend a lot of time with trying to get a temperature correct and, and get a, a, fla- a different flavor profile. So they're really always experimenting. And I like people, I like it when they're, I can throw caution to the wind and go, wow, I'm going to pay $8 for a shot of coffee but I know I'm going to get something special. Do you think about those things when you're, when, I mean, it's kind of, the process is very synonymous with how I think about um, architecture creatively. I just wanted to see if that, if you ever think about that as well. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, with, with coffee making, you know, one, one gram of coffee, you know, two degrees in temperature variation is going to affect the brewing and extraction. So, you know, I think there's obviously a, a need for attention to detail, and that's something I think I've carried on from from architecture training to be uh, you know really obsessive and disciplined about uh, technique and what you're creating, so to speak. So the process, as you've described it, has a lot in common with your architectural design process. But I was also I always see coffee brewing because of all these specific variables and the tiniest tweaks can make a giant difference. That the process is very scientific at the same time, like your you're not only dealing with chemistry and biology and such, but you're actually kind of formulating these recipes or these different espresso pulls based on more or less like a scientific process. Did you train with someone or how did you learn to make coffee? And was there like a, a scientific bent to it or um, or maybe even a particular architectural bent to it? Yeah, you know, I've, I've definitely worked with some, uh, some coffee professionals that, um, you know, really teach you the basics, the kind of fundamentals of the starting point. And, and from there... You know, one thing I want to mention is, is that equipment like coffee brewers, grinders have, have changed quite a bit and have evolved quite a bit to where it, it's now uh, really influencing how, how we brew coffee, at least in the specialty coffee uh, world, similar to maybe like CNC becoming you know, relevant in architecture. That's a really nice parallel, actually, that CNC related to, to because there's a, on the one hand, there is more ability to personalize, and on the other hand, it becomes much less personal. And I know there are different kinds of espresso machines that allow for the operator to draw more or not, that kind of, that kind of um, technique. Absolutely. So what kind of equipment do you operate on? What's your CNC machine? Uh, so we've been really exploring um, a, a batch brew grinder, uh, Mechanic, which they designed for... Um, large, you know, brewing large amounts of coffee for grinding the coffee for, for batch brews. And we, we've been taking that and, and exploring uh, the grind size for espresso extraction. And, and one thing that we, we found within this grinder is that there's, there's very little fines, meaning that all the particles, uh, majority of the particles that come out are, are extremely consistent. And that's, um, it can be good and bad. You know, sometimes variation in grind size could extract certain flavors that you may not have, have, you know, thought they were there just because, you know, a, a smaller grind is, is going to um, provide for uh, a more soluble extraction. Where are you experimenting with that? In Culver City? Culver City, yeah. Ken, did you have a question? Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to ask, I, I, I remember that the primary reason for the pop-ups 
uh, not yours specifically, but it, well, actually in relationship to what you started is that was because of the economy. And now that the economy is improving, do you see that these still, you see it as a, still a relevant idea? Um, and if so, do you think it can move forward in any? It seems like you've taken it in a really nice direction where you've, you know, the, the businesses that you're establishing your pop-ups in have a kind of a, a, a nice connection to what's actually being served. And do you see that as still a relevant possibility? And if so, do you think it would be something that other architects or maybe just entrepreneurs should continue to pursue? Absolutely. You know, I think I think one of the um, the great things about a pop-up is that the space that you're going into already has all of the health requirements, you know, the permits in place. So really what you're doing is, is bringing uh, the best of your product into an existing space without um, a lot of investment. But at the same time, it's, it's a good opportunity to really kind of test out that market, you know, the neighborhood. If you're thinking about opening up a shop there, um, you know, it, it's, it's a great way to, to fill out the, uh, the, the community there. Yeah, here in Minneapolis, they've um, one of the Shinola stores. They opened up a new Shinola in in Minneapolis, and they've brought in um, a local coffee brewer into their shop. So there's that. So I see that happening, and I like that. I like that cross pollinization happening, where you get these really nice um, things happening. So it, I'm glad to see you think that that's positive. What's the typical response from people when you tell them that you used to be an architect? <laughs> Are people surprised that they you've are. gone into coffee? They are, yeah. Yeah. Do do people see a uh, similarity in those professions or does it seem like it's just completely... I'm not, I'm not really sure. I have a feeling that, you know, once they know I'm an architect, they're like, oh, this coffee tastes good. <laughs> you know, it's like this bizarre, like, you know, yeah. like professional background that you're bringing to a cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I guess the reason I ask is because uh, people tend to have a very high level of respect for architects, probably higher than architects have for themselves. So, um, so yeah, it does seem like you're bringing in a, you know, a high level of professionalism or, or skill into, into the field of coffee. Yeah. You have Ivy league, uh, educated coffee baristas. Awesome. <laughs> I actually wanted to ask something about in particular relation to Los Angeles and street culture in Los Angeles and food service in Los Angeles. I'm, I'm not sure if you're particularly aware of this, but there's this effort to get street vendors regulated and legal because in Los Angeles, technically the, all of those people you see serving, you know, pieces of pineapple off the street and bacon wrapped hot dogs are not technically operating legally. So they're not regulated by any health codes or anything. And I know you're obviously separate from that and you have this position where you get to kind of play a part with whatever business you're popping up inside of. But I was wondering if you had any feeling that in operating in a specific space, you're having an effect out on the street, that you're kind of extending the, the atmosphere of the restaurant more out onto the street. Because if you get a cup of coffee, you head outside, you hang out, whether that kind of changes the urban sensibility and the streetscape outside of the pop-ups. Yeah, I, mean, I think the LA coffee, I'm sorry, the LA just food culture is pretty amazing in that People have empowered themselves and, you know, are doing these things that, that provide, I think food is, 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 is very close to home. You know, there's, there's culture there and, and there's social implications with food and, you know, to, 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 you know, see like the food trucks and, um, folks just, you know, making hot dogs in the street. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And it, it, it does challenge, I think the, the urban landscape, you know, quite a bit and, and, you know, gives, people, um, 
a lot more flexibility and, and, and not being forced to go eat at, you know, a fast food chain per se, that there's, you know, if you really seek it out, a lot of, a lot of interesting uh, food venue that's happening. Would it be feasible to open up a coffee cart on the sidewalk somewhere or does it have to be? You, you could, but you, you'd have to permit it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what are some of your favorite beans right now? Um, there's, there's a Kenya right now, uh, uh-huh. Gotamboya from uh, Bosneros that I'm really liking. What tastes, do you like about it? Tastes like a tomato stew. <laughs> oh. <laughs> a little sweet finish. <laughs> An endorsement for some, perhaps not for others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> do you have any plans on, on roasting yourself? Because I know that you carry a, a wide selection of beans, yeah. but, but you don't actually do any roasting, do you? Not, not at the moment. I mean, we, uh-huh. we, we played around. We, we, I have a 250 gram uh, home coffee roaster I've been playing around with, but I think it's probably the next step. Is that something that could be control. that could fit into your pop up model, or is that something that might have to have its own home somewhere? It, yeah, probably. Yeah, probably, <laughs> probably uh, yeah, the permitted route. Do you see yourself going back to architecture? You know, I, I do miss it. I mean, just coming in, coming into uh, your space and seeing yeah. the architecture books. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're you're welcome to come back anytime. Just bring coffee when you come. Yeah. <laughs> I hope my I hope the coffee I made you was good. Yeah, was good. Okay, good. <laughs> Always being polite. I think he's just saying that. <laughs> I think so. All right. Thanks so much for coming in, Yukai. Great. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Yukai. Thank you. Nice talking to you. So that was great talking with uh, Yukai Lim of Konya Senti Coffee. I've never actually been there, but now I'm definitely going to check it out. I think the whole concept of pop-ups are really integral to having like an interesting and active urban space, especially in LA where you have so much great food culture and so many different immigrant cultures contributing so much to the food scene, but it can be so hard to set up a brick and mortar and, you know, it's incredibly risky to start a restaurant. So I think it was really cool. And um, I'm definitely going to check out one of his pop-up works and get a cup of coffee. Did you guys think of anything uh, interesting about how maybe the coffee areas in your neighborhoods um, kind of contribute to the local urban scene and the architectural vibe? Well, I, I thought it was interesting that he brought up uh, Intelligentsia and Silver Lake for, for two reasons, actually. One reason is because I also shared that same type of almost religious experience when I first went to, because the Intelligentsia and Silver Lake in LA was pretty, was kind of the, the first of this new wave of higher end art of coffee type of um, experiences. But uh, secondly, Barbara Besser actually designed that space, which, uh, you know, was recently on our podcast. But the the opening of the Intelligentsia and Silver Lake really did kind of kickstart this type of uh, cultural movement in that area. I mean, uh, Silver Lake Junction has been kind of a hipster paradise for long before Intelligentsia came in. But it really did. I mean, it just uh, it kind of it complemented that atmosphere nicely. And I've noticed the same thing happening with other coffee startups around town. And there's a lot of them. So the the one thing that's happening here in Minneapolis, we do have a lot of, we have, you know, we have Starbucks, we have Dunn Brothers, we have all these different chain coffees, but we're getting more of these, more of these uh, local roasters and local coffee startups. They're doing brick and mortars. I think a lot of them have started uh, similar, maybe not pop-ups per se, but uh, what's happening now in Minneapolis is we're becoming, um, I think, I, in some measure, some uh, some measure, a uh, center of the brewing universe, at least in the Midwest. We've got a lot of tap rooms happening now in Minneapolis, and so there's a there's a tremendous number of food trucks and local 
brewers that are actually starting tap rooms and then transitioning to brew pubs. So that's kind of a big thing that's happening here. That's changing the uh, changing the equation in terms of uh, food service and, and dining experiences. That's happening here in Indianapolis too. We're getting a lot of new breweries. And I worked in Portland a while ago when brew pubs were everywhere. And that scene is now coming to Indianapolis. Finally, we're a little slow. But I loved in one of Yikai's interviews that I read, he said, he talked about how people will come in and say, what beans are good today? You know, what's the good thing I should order today. And I think people have been doing that in breweries for a while and brew pubs, you know, what's the, what's the good thing on tap today? And I love that there's this um, respect for the intelligence and knowledge of the person who's serving you, that they know what's good. They know what's, what's up and they can make recommendations. And after you get to know them, maybe they make a recommendation based on what they know about you and what you like. You know, it goes back to that whole cheers thing of, of having a third place where you go, where people know you. So it's, it's exciting to see that kind of local and very customized and craftsman-like approach to the food and, and things we're drinking and eating these days. Yeah, definitely. Especially with coffee, because you have a product that is so integral to the entire running of society. I mean, obviously there are, there are jokes to be made about architects drinking a lot of coffee or however, but no, like that in Western civilization and trade routes, bringing coffee to different cities, that the kind of urban center holds would be these cafes that would uh, kind of root up around different cities and create this spot where, you know, the intelligentsia, that's, I'm assuming how that coffee shop got its name, would come and meet and discuss on, on their caffeine highs, whatever intellectual topics they wanted to discuss. So there's a real core urban function that cafes serve that is now being just like constant, like compounded even more by this personalizing factor, like the cheers factor, which is awesome. And, and also how in places where, say, um, like I'm thinking of San Francisco, I used to go to Ritual Coffee Shop on Valencia Street, which was more or less a, I, I would describe it as like basically a unofficial WeWork space because everyone in there had their laptop. Everyone would stay on a $5 cup of drip coffee for like three or four hours doing their work. And it became a space where people did their jobs. Um, well, this that actually reminds me of a story I read recently that I believe Starbucks in China has become actually a shared workspace because people use it as their second offices. You pay for the couch, not for the coffee, yeah. basically. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right. I mean, we definitely have that here as well. And I, for a while when I was self-employed, I knew every meeting happened at one certain cafe. But then what changes that, and this is really interesting to me, is the whole pop-up nature of it. And the notion that with social networking, rather than have a physical third place, you could have a place that is a physical place, but it's not a permanent place, right? You can do a pop-up, like a, um, what is it when people... Um, text each other and then they dance like a... Um, oh, flash mob. The flash mob. Yes. You could do like a flash mob thing of, okay, the coffee place is at this intersection today. So that means all the people that typically saw each other across town yesterday are going to see each other at this intersection because via social networking, they're saying, okay, this is where it's happening. So in a way, it, it both reaffirms the fact that physical places are where people, you know, that architecture is important, that people get together in physical places, but it also means those physical places are these days, extremely ephemeral and mobile. Yeah. I'm totally fascinated by the parasitic nature of pop-ups. It seems like there's a huge potential to kind of evolve the pop-up as a typology more than, and because it, it seems like we're just in the beginning right now of seeing all these pop-ups kind of uh, emerge everywhere, but how they become integrated, you know, within their host venue uh, seems like it, it could, uh, we could see a lot of interesting exploration in that area. 
one of the one of the things I had been when I was unemployed in 2009 2010 one of the things I was looking at and looking at my area my neighborhood was seeing all the storefronts that were down and thinking about can you do like a a site specific pop up where it happened to be a um, a convenience store and what I was kind of kicking around this idea and trying to get some people motivated behind it was to create a an um, like a hybrid space where you mash up an art gallery with a convenience store, but yet all the products in the convenience store would be would be sellable art, and maybe they would be consumable, maybe they weren't, but it was all going to look like when you walked in like a convenience store, but it was all art, and it was per- it was and it would be purchased for that, you know, like if you buy a bag of chips. That little bag would cost you what a bag of chips would cost you. So it was, I, I, I was really because I was trying to activate because so many times I think what happens and probably happened in a lot of your neighborhoods as well is that they do, they see these blank storefronts and they go, well, let's do art in the storefront, and it just becomes so kind of like you know it, it really doesn't look great and it's kind of blah and it really doesn't draw people in. Yeah, but it was it's to very try static. To, yeah, and that's what I was thinking about with that. So that reminds me actually of a place in in Echo Park called the Time Travel Mart. It's like exactly what you're describing, Ken. It it looks like a kind of like a Seven Eleven type shop, but it's actually an art gallery. Oh wow! It's it's actually compounded too. It's A two six LA A two six Valencia is that like kids literacy program that uh-huh. started in San Francisco, and they they have a storefront to keep their nonprofit going at each different um, location across the nation. They have different storefronts. So I think in DC it's like the superhero shop, in <laughs> San Francisco it's uh, the pirate store, and in right. LA it's the right. it's the Echo Park Time Travel Mart, which is an awesome place, and you can buy like mammoth meat. And um, <laughs> right. you can, you can... <laughs> that. that was all on Arconnect. That was featured on Arconnect a while ago. I'm sure it has at some yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. But there's also, um, speaking of just art, combined art and commerce space, art and like restaurant spaces in LA, there's a space in also in, um, in Atwater Village called Thank You for Coming, which is an art gallery where they also serve food and kind of a co-op setting. And they have a, a rotating artist who comes in and curates both the menu and whatever art is on display. And it's a, it's a beautiful space. <laughs> yeah. It's really wonderful. And, and it's all run in a very like community oriented way. And Ken, when you referred to a convenience store art gallery, that makes perfect sense because yeah, yeah. it's like the Warhol singularity, but it's also like, yeah. <laughs> you know, you get hungry but looking at, you know, whatever <laughs> and you want some and, and, I wanted, <laughs> and I wanted to do it in such a way to, to draw, you know, I was thinking about that and thinking about clerks and I was thinking, wow, it'd be great to have even performance artists to really kind of authenticate like that this is a real convenience store, but really so that you would and kind of have like an Easter egg hunt and do these very strange things, you know, and it never went anywhere, but I like thinking about it when, especially when Ikai was coming on, I thought, wow, that, that brings back a lot of memories about this. You know, I don't know if it was a good idea. I think it was, I thought it was particularly thoughtful at the time. And so it was, I like, I like hearing what you've been talking about because those are really interesting spaces to me. I think the pop-up is totally poised to be the antidote to the uh, convenience store's existential angst as we see in Clerks. I can't vouch for <laughs> yes. clerks, clerks too, but definitely Clerks. Definitely Clerks. <laughs> yes. Um, well, moving on from issues of convenience stores and art, let's just remove the convenience store aspect um, and talk about this week's announcement of the finalists for the Guggenheim Helsinki competition that was just announced yesterday. So all I was a little bit saddened to see that the 
projects that we had previously featured on Archonnect from the um, initial <laughs> submissions, none of which showed up no. in the final, nope. um, but, which is too bad. The potato got baked. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, it's too bad. But um, I think that there's a very specific similarity that is kind of drafted through all of the final six finalists that were chosen. And Donna, I was really, I really appreciated you posted a comment to the piece um, linking to the selection, how the selection process for the committee that chose the six finalists. I thought that was a real, I just skimmed their process a little bit. I th thought it was really fascinating and a very, a very important thing to make clear, like to make public how these things are at least in method, how they're chosen, maybe not in like making opinions transparent, but showing, okay, here's a, a competition that received an insane load of submissions. And how do we actually sift those down into the ones that are not just technically fulfilling the brief, but are actually good for the, uh, for the proposal? I, I think they were making an attempt in that page I linked to, to say, yeah, this is, you know, it, it is impossible to, for an, what is an 11 member jury to pick through 1700 App, yeah. uh, you know, entries. Mm -hmm. um, so they sort of had a pre-process and they explained why some of them were just put into the red category of, no, this won't, this will not happen. Either it's just too, you know, it's not elucidated clearly enough or it's impossible or something. Or they also gave some criteria and said, if it just really did not meet these certain criteria, then we just had to say no. So I feel like they're trying to actually be somewhat thoughtful and transparent about the, the, these presentations. Of course, we don't know at all what goes on behind closed doors. But I do appreciate that they at least took it seriously that people would have questions about this process and tried to address those questions. Yeah. Did anyone have a particular one that they liked or? I did post on there the one that looks kind of like flowing illuminated water. Uh, it's very right, lovely. Right. And I and I said yeah. the way I phrased it, the rendering is very lovely. I don't really know how the building would work <laughs> or appear, but the rendering is is extremely engaging. It, yeah. It's a stunning image. I'm trying to find, I, I came across an article talking about how all of the, on some other website about how all the selected finalists are horrible, but I can't seem to find it now. Um, <laughs> Is it Oliver Rain wrote an article, I think today, and they did list who all of the um, finalists are, but they haven't ascribed which proposal was by which firm. And I went to all of the the websites for the everyone who was listed, and a couple of them at least looked like they're just a placeholder page at this moment. Like it's a um, you know a couple of people got together and said let's work on this together, and they put up a placeholder with contact information website. So, but then some of them have plenty of built work and experience behind them. So it'll be interesting to learn a little more about those those firms. I like the uh, the thirty one rooms, which apparently is probably uh, some people's uh, least favorite. But I I thought that one to me struck me as talking more about very tangible things, but then really these abstract images, which didn't tell you anything. So it left me like trying to piece all of it together and think about what was going to happen in this building. And it left more room for architecture, I think, and for, for more um, thinking about the space than I think the other ones did for me. Well, to me, they're totally nostalgic in a way, but of moving yeah. forward of the Mies van der Rohe National Gallery uh, renderings, you know, where it's just a, a grid of structure and then these pieces of art in the foreground. They're that kind of collage feel. It's very similar to that. But I like the way you described it, that it sort of leaves room for the architecture to be defined later. So there's one entry that kind of had my, had me, my, had made my, made me, head, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is one entry that made me scratch my head. This, in the renderings that are shown on uh, both Archonnect and Bustler, there's one that is more of a collage image showcasing what I guess would be potentially exhibited art. 
which includes a, a mobile with drum yeah. drum symbols yeah. and such. I was wondering, I, I didn't really know what to make of that. Um, that's the 31 rooms one, right, Ken? Or am I wrong? Yeah, yes. Okay. Yes. No, yeah. that's it. So Ken, what initially struck you about that image and how did it, how did you then like um, relate it to the later information? I think it struck me because all the other ones seem so polished and this one seems so honest. You know, one of the things that I am really skeptical of whenever I look at these really polished renderings is that we've seen it before on Archonnect. We've seen it before um, in, in reality that the image that we're presented with is kind of is fake. It's it's false. And it'll never reach that beautiful image. This last one didn't tell you anything about the architecture. It told you more about maybe the activities happening within that space, maybe more about the art, maybe more about things that are more human scaled. And in a very, very um, artistic way, and all these other ones seem regurg, you know, the stuff that you would typically see mm. in a competition of this nature. And that one was the only one that didn't do that. And I'm like, that struck me. I agree. I had the same response. It's uh, I'm scared that this is just going to be another kind of competition of who can create the sexiest form. Right. But, you know, the fact that that presentation was almost intentionally not formal, it expressed that there was some kind of deeper level of thought that that was going into this concept that was being expressed as much as it could be in a single image. In a way, it didn't even matter what that image looked like. It just got me more interested. Well, and if you look at the proposal, the proposal is fascinating to me. It seems to suggest that there are these different rooms that are going to be at different climates. Mm -hmm. And to me, I mean, something very just bizarre and very unique that that would never, I I know Guggenheim is never going to build this. That I know (laughs) for sure, because this is such a risk. But it seems very much part of the place and very much connected to that, to have these these, they talk about saunas, the politics of the sauna. So, I mean, I'm really struck by the beautiful, that beautiful collage. And then you get in there, there's actually substance. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a good point. I would also prefer to experience any art after visiting a sauna. So I, I appreciate that they have that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that says about your opinion of contemporary <laughs> art. <laughs> Amelia, you might, uh, I, I, you know, I, I noticed that the, um, one of them seems like it has a little 3DH in it. So if we could get some 3DH built, I'd be happy about that. That would be uh. it. <laughs> it's the one that's like the towers of wood. I think it, it looks like sort of these um, clustered towers of, I think, wood shingles. There's an interior view that has uh, that has a little 3DH action going on. Well, maybe that's Pera's submission. His name wasn't on the list, but maybe uh, maybe he's on the team. It could be. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask a question? When when you were, re- I, I just started to read the the competition, the selecting the long list. Have you seen that before? Were they because it seemed like there was a lot of negativity around this when it first when the, all the submissions were kind of put together, and then I don't know if they felt that because this I don't think I've recall I don't I maybe maybe it has maybe I'm not you know I don't do a lot of competitions. In fact, I haven't done any, but this seems rather interesting to me that they would talk about how they went about selecting and what they were excluding and what they really were looking for. Is that unique to them or is that rather a standard operating procedure? I don't know either if it's standard or not, but to me it seems that they are trying to take this seriously or make give the appearance of taking it very seriously. I, th- I think they must be because I feel like they sort of came out ready to answer questions as to why wasn't mine picked or why wasn't this one picked. Um, and maybe they crafted this criteria afterwards. I don't know. 
you know, sort of like doing the sketch afterwards, the concept sketch after the building's done, and then you make the concept sketch famous. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I don't know, but but um, but there's certainly, I mean, there's been a whole lot of outcry about the amount of free work that went into this competition, and looking at the the results that were announced so far, I, you know, I'm starting to see both sides of that, you know, sure. For some people, this is a great opportunity now to get their names known for a few, a very few <laughs> by comparison, but still. I, I think the competition, I mean, I, the competition has obviously been a great PR thing for, for the Guggenheim, but um, it seems like it would have been nice to see a competition that was for not for the actual design of the real building to be built, but a competition for maybe an idea of the building. So something that can actually be taken seriously. It's hard to take this seriously. I mean, it's uh, I don't know. Am I am I the only one that feels that way? Or I think it could go either way. I do. I mean, it, it, obviously, it's great PR for Guggenheim. Whether they'll follow through. Uh, one of the articles I read today was talking about how much risk in this project is um, related to uh, it's it's Finland has to take it on. Helsinki has to take it on, not the Guggenheim. You know, the Guggenheim basically stands only to profit from this. Mm -hmm. So has the has this kind of competition become the new Olympic FIFA boondoggle? <laughs> in a way, this, the nature of this kind of competition, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, potentially, I you know. But the, and I'm sorry, I can't recall. It wasn't Ollie Wainwright. It was someone else wrote an article today, and I will link to it in the show notes. Um, talked about, um, you know, the Bilbao effect is still seems to be something people are at, going after. And frankly, it seems like that's wound down quite a bit. You know, lots of places are building these crazy signature buildings. And that doesn't necessarily, it, Bilbao was magical. Obviously, it happened once. It was the first time it was, it was magical for everyone involved. It worked out exactly as they wanted, even better. But Will that, can that happen again? Probably not. I mean, lots of places are building museums now. Are any of the, the names that you're familiar with, are any of them um, famous or this, the typical? No, not at all. So, I mean, if they do build this, this will be very different than their typical model then. Yes, that's a very good point. And if they build this, there's a good chance that they don't have any experience building at that scale. Absolutely. Which could end up becoming a gigantic... Uh... Well, they'll certainly partner up with somebody. That's, that's yeah. how it's going to I mean, Guggenheim's smart enough. They'll, yeah. they'll, find someone to, they'll find someone to take it on. And then that brings into, the, into question the, the design that we're seeing here. Does that get further, you know, as competitions tend to do, you know, you, the intent is one thing, the, the built form is another. And then, you know, we don't, we don't, argue, we don't haggle about, oh... You know. Didn't that happen just recently in, in some really important site in New York or something, like at the end of Manhattan, where there was a promise made during the competition stages? I, and then I seem to recall something of that nature. Yeah, a few, a few projects. <laughs> and then the result was kind of mediocre. Mediocre. <laughs> just kind of boring. <laughs> you wouldn't be talking about World Trade Center One, would you? <laughs> no. Well, I, that's a pretty good inference. Yes. So let's hope this doesn't. Uh, let's well, hope this ends up with a better outcome. Well, we will definitely keep everybody up to date on the latest happenings on this project. So stay tuned to to the news on Arconnect for updates on on this. And uh, I think it's about time maybe to wrap up this uh, this week's talk. Go get some more coffee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go and try some of that those Canyon beans that that you yeah. was recommending. Absolutely. So as I do each week, I'd like to remind everybody that they can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Tweet us with hashtag Arconnect Sessions if you have any comments or questions. And don't forget that we have a call-in number that people can call in to comment 
or or send questions, suggestions, whatever, that number is 213-784-7421. And uh, we will be having our lawyer next episode. Oh. So if you've got any <laughs> if you've got any architectural legal questions, uh, we're not going to be giving free advice. But if the uh, question that our lawyer answers helps you, then you know, there you go. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Paul. That phrase just yeah. sent a chill up my spine because my, my husband and I are attempting to buy a piece of property and we, he we heard from a neighbor next door this week, I'm contacting my lawyer. And just, <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to jinx it. But yeah. What a horrible. It'll be good to have an actual expert in this yeah. area. <laughs> what a, that's a horrible thing to hear. It is. I'm going to sick my lawyer on you. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, do you have anything to endorse this week, Paul? Is there something you want to point out on the site? Um, I don't. Do you? I actually do. Oh. That was my very backhanded way of, <laughs> okay. of trying to recommend my own thing. Good job, Amelia. I wanted to point people's attention towards uh, Nicholas's latest piece, um, The Architecture of the Anthropocene, the second piece he's done in that series, which focuses on the concept of, you know, speaking of pop-ups and how people can kind of graft themselves onto another pre-existing thing. This piece uh, goes a lot into parasites and how the distinction between the human body and the outside world can be kind of analogized in the architecture of a, of a house and the outside world, the exterior world of, um, outside of a home and how we feel the sense of security inside and uh, separateness and otherness in the outside. But in fact, they're very much wrapped up in each other. Um, the, the piece itself is, it's kind of, most of the examples are less architectural and more just gross out parasite anecdotes, which um, are very entertaining to read and very interesting. And a very uh, consistent analogy is drawn throughout the piece with the uh, the short story, uh, Fall of the House of Usher, um, as the kind of like horror story that links the idea of a house to the, per to the uh, person's body and how each thing can become corrupted in this sense of insanity and stuff. It's a really awesome piece. The full title again is Architecture of the Anthropocene Part 2, Haunted Houses, Living Buildings, and Other Horror Stories. So I would definitely encourage people to check that out. I really like that piece a lot. Ken and Donna, do you guys have anything to endorse? Yeah, I do. I, I was reading this piece by one of the editors of Archonnect that I really, really love, and I hope she'll talk about it soon. Um, Home is Where the Heart Art Is. I really, really, ah. I really, really rather uh, like that piece a lot by uh, that Amelia did. So um, I really want to endorse that one, and hopefully we can get into a discussion about that in the future, if she would like to talk about it. Yeah, she I, would. I love it too. <laughs> yes, she should. She should talk about it. That that author is very inaccessible. <laughs> I actually have a paper bag over my head, so not even Paul knows what I look like. Uh, not famous. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, thank you, Ken. That piece uh, was very much inspired by um, the intervention conference that was held in different historic houses around LA that I detail in the piece. So that piece got me thinking about how wacky historical preservation of of architecturally significant homes is and that whole time warp that we engage in when we're trying to keep a certain mood and time alive when everything else is dying or changing around it. So, you know, it's funny. I th I, this episode more than any others this week has really hit a lot of like a lot of things I've been thinking about lately. And, and this one in particular, because it goes, it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about last week and about historic preservation. It just, I find the rules around what is preserved and for who it's preserved and for whom and why just, just 
and it just bothered me endlessly. So I, I, I think about like in one of the houses that I really think about a lot is um, is Philip Johnson's glass house. And I, I've always wanted to, as a real <laughs> kind of a, uh, an idea to, to create an insertion or intervention in that building, because it seems so obscene to do something like that to just kind of, you know, and I liked mm. the idea of being, and it, it really broke out of my reading. Uh, I was doing some reading about the punk rock movement and it really, I said, what could be more punk than actually just, you know, taking on really signature homes and, and, and really inserting something that it just seemed the most obscene thing you could possibly do. And I, so I, I really kind of appreciate when you talk about, you know, how things are, how things, when you walk into a home, how it's become this, almost a museum to a past that no one can really relate to anymore. And how is it true? How much of it's true and how much of it is fiction? Mm -hmm. That's why I was also so glad to get that Futurama reference in there. Because yeah. everything, <laughs> everything can perfect. be put. <laughs> um, no, and, and Ken, going back to the glass house though, there are, there have been repeat efforts to prevent flooding around the house. Mm -hmm. um, there've been really, really problem, like highly damaging um, incidents of flooding that have, done massive damages to the house. And that, that is also like something, are you going to then, you know, stop climate change because it <laughs> prevents this exactly. home from being preserved the same way. So I think there's a lot of intervening factors that yeah. are just only going to make things more complicated and more interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks for that pat on the back then. I really appreciate I, it. I love it a lot. <laughs> um, Donna? It's a, yeah, it's a great article. I hope we can talk a little more about it. I am most of all excited today that the initial renderings for the new Cummins headquarters in downtown Indianapolis designed by Deborah Burke were published. And um, I love what I see so far. It's just a couple of images, but it looks really good. It looks just elegant and sophisticated as all of her work is. Um, but also on a on an urban scale, it looks like it takes some um, interesting approaches that will change the way that the city operates in that block. It's an entire block uh, site. So very excited about that. And um, can't wait to, to see more information about it as it comes. The other thing I was excited about or interested in this week is we've had two really hot and heavy conversations in the forum about debt, the debt question. So I think the debt, uh, the, you know, the, the Nick's, Nicholas's um, series on debt is going to keep going. And uh, you can see that there is a lot to talk about and learn from because lots of people are in this boat of having huge amounts of debt. Um, and trying to figure out how to strategize, how to pay it back, how to get the most out of their education since they're paying so much for it. So um, it's been a really interesting conversation. So anyone who's listening who has debt, go read about other people's experiences and um, and uh, tweet them to us at the Arconet Sessions hashtag because we want to hear your debt stories. Yes, please. please Absolutely. All right. So I think that's it for this week, unless anybody else has any final words. Nope. That's it. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And uh, and for those of you that are still listening to the very end, we know that you enjoyed yourself. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here with us. Please go and review us on uh, iTunes. That would be really appreciated. And uh, we'll see you next week. See you next week. See you next week. Bye, Bye. everyone. Bye, guys. Bye.